0: We're starting a new series today that I'm really excited about. We're doing it a little bit different way, but I'm really excited about this series. We're going to be looking through, I mentioned last week, we're going to be looking through the book of the Old Testament book of Esther. And I had a couple people tell me that um, they would take me up on my offer and they're going to read, you know, and so it's like, they sit down it's like, I'm going to read this first chapter here and see. And it's a story that just sucks you in. And, and, and a number of them said, well, when I got to chapter 10, I finished. And it's not, it's very short. Some of them are very short chapters, but it's just, it's an amazing story. And, and here's the thing. Um, Esther's, you know, a hero to her nation and has been for, you know, 2,500 years. But its its it's like you. We think of us and we think of how important we are, what's going on. And really the bottom line is it's not about you. It's not about you. Just like the book of Esther, it really isn't about Esther. It's about God. It's about the creator and savior of the world. And he is the main character of this book, even though it's the only book in the Bible that his name is never mentioned. But you can see him in every verse, just like in your story. So here's what we're going to do today. We're going to cover the whole book today. So I hope you got coffee. Comfortable. (laughs) We are going to cover the whole book today. You'll notice in your worship folder there is no outline. There's a we're going to we're going to kind of it's it's a little bit of an overview, a little bit of a dive in, but. We're going to go through a lot of verses and I don't want to get bogged down with you trying to follow on screen. I just want you to listen. If you have your Bible, you can turn to Esther. I think we'll be in the New Living Translation most of the time. But we're going to, do, we're going to look at two different things. We're going to look at the big characters of the book because I want you to get an overview of the book. I want you to understand what it's about so that as we dive into some of the things and see how, how they apply to us now 2,500 years later you got an idea of the story. So we're going to look at the characters of the book, and then we're going to look at their story. So first, the big characters of the book. The first one is a guy named Xerxes, King Xerxes. Um, Xerxes was a bad guy, uh, but he did a few good things. And that's kind of an important piece to our story. Here's how the book starts out in Esther 1, chapter 1. It says, These events happened in the days of King Xerxes, who reigned over 127 provinces. Now, if you think of your geography for a minute, it says stretching from India to Ethiopia. Big area he's reigning over. It says, at that time, Xerxes ruled his empire from his royal throne at the fortress of Susa, probably somewhere in what we know as modern-day Iraq. But he had this big fortress there, he had his palace there, he had his, his, his headquarters there, and he, from all over, all over that area, he ruled from there. Uh, we're talking roughly 480, 85 BC, um, Xerxes, I like the name Xerxes, some of the older translations call him Ahasuerus, and it's just much, it doesn't flow off the tongue quite as nice, <laughs> it's a lot easier to say Xerxes. Xerxes. Um, Probably, he's probably one of the middle leaders of the the Persians. Um, If you remember any Old Testament history, one of the things that happened that was huge for them is um, the the Babylonians came in and kind of took over. You remember the big story there, and they hauled a bunch of them off. They hauled most of the, the nation of Israel off to live in their land. The next group after the Babylonians to rule that whole area, which was the known world, was these people headed by Xerxes, and then later some of his um, kids. They were eventually defeated by the Greeks. But this is, this is in the history books. This is big time happening here. He's the, the number one guy, and although he was a bad guy, he did some, you didn't want to be his enemy, okay? There, were, there are people, if you're their enemy, they'll say mean things about you. He didn't. He took a pole and set the pole up, sharpened the end of it before he put it up and stuck you on it like a popsicle for everybody to see. That's what he did to his enemies. That's what he did to traitors. It was just amazing. Here's the truth that I want you to hear from that about the story of Xerxes. And this is way more um, current than we would think. I don't know if you've been watching the news. I'm not going to comment on what's been happening. You may or may not take sides on on what's been happening in the news and the interviews and the things that have been going on. But here's what you need to know from all of that. It doesn't matter how corrupt the powers that govern this world can become. God is always sovereign. When I watch the news, that's always the truth that comes to my mind. And it's like, thank you, Jesus. I am not putting my trust in those buffoons. I mean those very (laughs) high people in Washington. That's not where my hope is. That's not where my trust is. I am. I said this yesterday to somebody, and I believe it with all my heart. I can't tell you how grateful I am to be born in the time that I was born and in the country that I was born in. I am extremely grateful for that. After seeing a little bit of some other stuff, I am even more grateful for where God has placed me. But I know that's not true for everybody around the world. And it doesn't matter how corrupt the powers that govern this world become, God is always sovereign. Those people may not have fully understood that back then. And they thought their situation was the worst situation that you could ever be in. And for them it was. But our situation is goofy too everybody has goofy situations, but you know what? God's in control. We have to remember that. So that's Xerxes. We'll get back to him. Next person is Vashti. Now Vashti, we don't know much about her. We're going to talk a little bit more about her next week, but I just kind of want to do a flyover so you get a picture. Vashti was Xerxes's wife, like one of his wives. He had, I don't know how anybody gets away with this. He had numerous wives, and there was an order, and she was the number one wife, um, And which it's like, he's alive. How is it even possible that he's alive? But she was also the queen. So he had all these wives, but she was the queen, so she had this very high position. Um, but there's a couple of celebrations that happened, parties that happened during this book. And one of the the huge celebrations that's hosted by Xerxes, um, as is typical, um, he was drunk, and he sent messengers to have Vashti come, and it it makes it sound like she's going to come and show up, and everybody gets to see her, and and the truth is, she's going to probably come to entertain the guests with her beauty, and she refuses to do so. It more than likely involved stripping down in front of all these drunk guys that were here at this party and she said no you don't say no to Xerxes so here's what he did he just he didn't put her on a impale her on a pole Um, he removed her as queen he said you know what done with that and there's a story behind that that's actually kind of funny and we'll get to that in a week or two but um, he removed her as queen and said don't, you don't come into my presence anymore. You're not the queen anymore, and she's gone, and so now he doesn't have a queen. But just because she said no, she's done. She's not queen anymore. That's Vashti. We'll get back to that. The next character is Haman. Haman is kind of like, for them, he's the, the, the ancient Hitler. Just not much good here at all with Haman. Here's what it says in Esther 3 about Haman. Sometime later, King Xerxes promoted Haman son of Hamadatha the Agagite, over all the other nobles, making him the most powerful official in the empire. So remember, the empire stretched over that whole area, the whole, really, the whole known world at that time. And he was the most powerful official, it says, in the empire. All the king's officials, verse 2, would bow down before Haman to show him respect whenever he passed by. Now, if you stop there, you think, wow. That's pretty cool. And you'd think Haman would think, that's pretty cool. Look at this. Everybody's bowing down to me Everything, every, every time I walk by. I, it's funny when I read this because you've got to let the flow happen. All the king's officials would bow down before Haman to show him respect whenever he passed by, for so the king had commanded. <laughs> it's like they really don't care about you, Haman. They're not bowing down because of you. They're bowing down because of the guy who's going to stick them on a pole out in the, the field so everybody can see Interesting, though, one of the king's officials, obviously, because they're the ones who bow down, end of verse 2 says, but Mordecai refused to bow down or show him respect. And that's our fourth character here is Mordecai. And Mordecai, um, let, let me just read a little bit from Esther 2. It says, at that time, the time frame we're looking at, there was a Jewish man, In the fortress of Susa. So he had some prominent position because he was not just in the area, he was in this fortress, so he was an official of some kind. It says his name was Mordecai, son of Jair. He was from the tribe of Benjamin and was a descendant of Kish and Shemi. His family had been among those who, with King Jehoiakim of Judah, had been exiled from Jerusalem to Babylon with King Nebuchadnezzar. So when Nebuchadnezzar took all the Jews and moved them out, his family was one that was there. And so that's where he's at now because his family was moved there. And and the next verse is very interesting. This man, Mordecai, had a very beautiful and and lovely young cousin, Hadassah, who was also called Esther. Esther is her Persian name. It means like star or something. But it's interesting in this translation when you read it, this man had a very beautiful and lovely young cousin. And I had read it slightly differently in a different translation, so I started looking up some of the words. It's kind of interesting. The second part of that lovely, lovely young cousin is just she's beautiful. Literally, it just means she, it was it was pleasant to look at her. The first part, though, is even more interesting because what it literally says is she had a nice outline. <laughs> I think what an interesting way to describe it. she had a night I'm not going to make the shapes <laughs> she had, you get the picture she had a nice outline it says and it says when her father and mother died Mordecai adopted her into his family and raised her as his own daughter so she, she's his younger cousin and, and her mom and dad die, and so he takes her in in this foreign land, he takes her in and raises her. So here we have these two people who we don't know the extent to which they follow God, but we know that they do, we know that they're Jewish, we know that they're part of the exiles, but they're keeping with what they had, and Mordecai had enough in him that when, when it was time to bow down to Haman, he said, yeah, that ain't happening that's not who I bow down to. And and then the fifth character in the story that we just mentioned is Esther. And we're going to get into this later, but Esther took the place of Vashti as queen. And if you want to read a very interesting, but slightly weird story, read Esther this week and see how she became queen. But we'll talk about that. So we have Esther and we have Mordecai. who who he was raising her. We have Xerxes, the king, his wife, who was deposed as queen and no longer going to be around there, although history tells us she did come back when Xerxes left and his son um, started reigning, very possibly her son also. She was then prominent again, but for like 20 years during the period of our story, she was out of the picture. And then we have Haman who was the bad guy, you know, I I taught this lesson in, not this, but I talked about uh, Esther one time with the youth group. And whenever I would say the the word Haman, um, I had all of the kids go, boo. (laughs) And so they had to, I did that because they needed to pay attention. Maybe I should do it with all of us here. Whenever I say Haman, you go, boo, (laughs) he's the bad guy. So those are the main characters. Although, as I said, the main character in the story is not any one of those five. The main character in this story, even though he's never mentioned, is God. So here's their story. I'm just going to hit like five or six of of the main things very quick. We're going to read some of the scriptures that talk about that so that you can see the story. But there's some truth in here that 2,500 years later applies greatly to us, just like the fact that it doesn't matter what's happening with the government. God is in control. So here's the first part of the story. Mordecai saves the king. Mordecai saves the king. In Esther 2, it says this. One day, as Mordecai was on duty at the king's gate. Now, w- when you start reading that, it's, it's almost like a, here's what happened. And one day, Mordecai's this, and, and, and you'll read it, and it'll be very easy to place into that, that, wow, that was an amazing coincidence. If there's anything you learn from the book of es- Esther, it's that in God's economy, nothing is a coincidence. So even though it's just one day this is happening, it says he was on duty at the king's gate because he's one of the officials. Two of the king's eunuchs, and we're not going to talk about that today. You can listen to the message from the baptism service and we'll, you'll know all you need to know about eunuchs. Two of the king's eunuchs, his, his guards, um, they were like his bodyguards. Their names are Big Thana and Teresh. That's a name for a bodyguard, isn't it? Big Thana. (laughs) I don't know what he looked like, but he's one of the guards. And it says they were guards at the door of the king's private quarters. So they're his personal bodyguards, very high position for them. It says they became angry at King Xerxes and plotted to assassinate him. But Mordecai heard about the plot. And again, he just happened to hear about the plot. And gave the information to Queen Esther. Because I told you she became queen, and we'll get into that story um, later. But she became queen. He gave the information to Queen Esther. She then told the king about it and gave Mordecai credit for the report. She goes into the king and says, these two guys are planning to kill you. Mordecai found out about it. She gives him credit. And it says, when an investigation was made and Mordecai's story was found to be true, the two men were impaled on a sharpened pole. I just, just, it's just nothing good about that at all. That's why you don't want to be Xerxes' enemies. But Mordecai is kind of the hero here at this moment because he saves the king's life. The king knows this. And then things just continue. Um, A little bit later, Haman, the bad, yeah, very good, (laughs) Haman, (laughs) the bad guy, plots to kill all of the Jews because of Mordecai. Can't stand Mordecai, but he's one of the few that know that Mordecai is a Jew and does not like him, knows all the people living there. It's one of these things where it's just boiling in him. He's letting it get the best of him. It becomes a bad thing. And I told you, he's like this ancient Hitler. And he was bent on the annihilation of this entire ethnicity of people that he considered less valuable than his own people. People who he considered a threat to his ego. He hated the fact that the only official in the king's entire court that would not bow down to him when he walked by was Mordecai. He hated that. And so he plots to kill all the Jews. Now that's that's a big deal. He, he casts these lot kind of things, rolls the dice, he called them Purim, which is you'll read at the end, that's where this whole feast of Purim thing comes in. But um, decided that he, he said, it's like he throws a dart on this one day, and it's like, that's the day um, we're going to just kill all the Jews. All the Jews in the land get killed. And to make sure that it happens, he says, anybody who does that gets all of what they had, gets all their property. So he's, in essence, hired the entire country as hitmen. to to take care of all the Jews. And so Mordecai knows this. Um, Esther, who is now queen, who is a Jew, although at that point yet nobody knows that because she's kind of kept that secret. Mordecai and Esther are able to talk because Mordecai is an official and he gets to come into the king's, not into the harem, but into the court where he can communicate with Esther and they hatch a plan. And that's a huge part of this book um, in, in the, this plan they hatch. And here's what it says in, in Esther 4. He comes in, and when he's talking to Esther, he tells Esther, uh, you, have, you need to do something about this. You're the queen. If you don't, we're all going to die. And here's what he says. Mordecai um, sent this reply to Esther. They had been having this communication, and his reply was this. Don't think, in verse 13 of chapter 4, don't think for a moment that because you're in the palace, you will escape When all other Jews are killed. saying, Don't think that you're going to get out of this just because you're in the palace. And he says, if you keep quiet at a time like this, and that's actually, to me, that's like the theme of the whole book. If you keep quiet at a time like this, I want you to take note of how he says that because it's not only a theme for this whole story, it's a theme for you. Because you're at a time in your life, there are things happening in your life. Maybe, maybe sometimes you feel like everything has brought you to this point, and maybe that's a really good thing, and maybe it's a really bad thing. And maybe you don't like what's happened in your life or what's happening in your life or things that are out of your control, and you're thinking, if this would just go away. And he's saying, if you keep quiet at a time like this, deliverance and relief for the Jews will arise from some other place but you and your relatives will die interesting he had enough confidence in the fact that God had made a promise to the nation of Israel that they would not perish from the earth that there would be greatness there would be hope there would be grace come out of this nation and he believed that enough to be able to say the majority of the Jews had not gone back they were still living in this land with Xerxes as king And if they got wiped out, there wasn't a lot of hope for the Jews. And and Mordecai knows enough to say, if you don't do anything, something's going to be done. But you and all of us are going to die. And then his famous words, who knows if perhaps you were made queen for just such a time as this. That's huge. So Esther sent this reply to Mordecai, go and gather together all the Jews of Susa and fast for me. It's interesting. They never mention praying. Now we're assuming that they're praying here, but it doesn't say that. It just says, have them fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. My maids and I will do the same. Now for me, if they're fasting, it doesn't say they're praying, but I believe they are because one of the things for me, anyhow, one of the things about fasting is not that I choose, okay, from 11 to 12, I'm going to fast today. It's usually because I'm connecting with God And God is doing something in my life and in my walk with him. And at that time, I kind of forget to eat. I'm just focused on something else. And so he's having, um, she's having all of the Jews of Susa, as well as all of her people, fast for three days. So that they can prepare for this, so they can think about what to do. And it says, so Mordecai went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. Which is interesting because earlier in the story, he orders her to do something because that was their position and things have switched now. She orders him to do something, and so that's what he does it. But here's what you need to understand about this. Because it's true back then, but it's true today too. God always has kingdom insiders. He always has somebody inside that can, that can do what he needs done. And the truth is, you are one of them. You in your situation, you in your time like this, whatever it is, good or bad, however it's happening, with work, with family, with friends, with whatever, you are one of God's kingdom insiders, and he wants you to dispel darkness and throw light on your world. And you say, oh, I can't do that. And he say, well, if you don't do it, somebody else is going to, and you're going to be the one in the dark. Because he can get it done. But he wants to use you. He wants you to be able to experience that. So they hatched this plan. The next part of the story is one of those ones we're getting into. It's like, it's really weird, but in a very macabre way, it's actually, there's, there's some humor in it. And, and, and Haman, uh, the fourth thing is Haman makes a gallows for Mordecai. I call it a gallows because everybody knows what that is. And they kind of called it that for a while, but it's not like you know a pole where they're going to hang him, like the Wild West or something. Here's what it says in verse 10 of chapter 5. Haman gathered together his friends and Zeresh, his wife, and boasted to them about his great wealth and his many children. He bragged about the honors the king had given him. So, you know, he's the number one guy in the country under the king. And how he had been promoted over all the other nobles and officials. Then Haman added, and that's not all. Queen Esther invited only me and the king himself to the banquet she prepared for us. When you read that story, it's a fascinating part of the story. But he's bragging about this now. There's only two people in the whole kingdom that the queen invited, the king and me. That's how cool I am, he says. And she invited me to dine with her and the king again tomorrow. So here's what he's bragging about, is that he's going to be at this meeting with the king and her tomorrow. But then he added, But this is all worth nothing. As long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting there at the palace gate, this guy was riddled with bitterness. He had all this theoretically going for him, and he said, "None of it matters as long as I keep seeing that guy there, my arch enemy." You know, he's that he's consumed by this. It says so. Haman's wife, Zeresh, and all his friends suggested, and I would suggest that they're not his friends. Okay, they're just. They're his acquaintances, but they're not really his friends. Here's what they suggest. Set up a sharpened pole, a real theme through this book, sharpened poles, that stands 75 feet high, okay, and in the morning ask the king to impale Mordecai on it. So he doesn't know the relationship between Mordecai and Esther at the moment, doesn't know Esther's a Jew. She's just, his wife is just telling him, here's what you need to do. 75-foot high pole asks the king to impale Mordecai, and he's not going to say no to you. You're his number one guy. And he, he, they're all convinced this is what's going to happen, and he's thinking, that's a good idea. It says, when this is done, you can go on your merry way to the banquet with the king. So it's like, I have a good thing happen tomorrow. i got this appointment. It's with the king and the queen only. It's going to be a cool thing. I think I'll impale a guy on a 75-foot pole before I go to the meeting, and then I can have a good meeting, be a good meeting. And we laugh at that. You know, there's many times that many of us have thought the same thing. It didn't involve a 75-foot pole. It didn't involve impaling somebody on it. It involved something that if that happened, we could then go on our merry way. That's what we think. It said, this pleased Haman. And so he ordered the pole set up. So he's getting this set up ready, and you know, 75 feet high, what that means is everybody will be able to see this. In the entire area, everybody will be able to see this. The fifth part of the story to me is one of the more fascinating ones, the king can't sleep. Now all of us get in that position, and sometimes for whatever reason, we have stuff going on and we can't sleep, sometimes we can trace it back to, yep, shouldn't have watched that show before I went to bed. Shouldn't have had that pizza before I went to bed or shouldn't have, you know, and we can trace it to something or there's concern or there's worry. But this is just, it says, that night, which I think is fascinating, it says, that night, the king had trouble sleeping. And if you think for a moment, it's just because he had too much of the royal pizza, this is God all over this. The king, that night, had trouble sleeping. So here's what he does. He orders an attendant to get one of the sermons from Journey North Church and listen to it. <laughs> because you'll be able to fall asleep. <laughs> I know people who actually have CDs for that purpose, but that's, it is what it is. Here's what it says. He ordered an attendant to bring him the book of the history of his reign so it could be read to him. Because they kept these books about everything he did and, all, and it made him look good in all of it, so it's like bring those books that talk about me and read it to me while I sleep. So he's been king for a while. So there's a lot of material to go through. So it's not like they're going to read the whole thing. He's been king for years now. And so they grab the books. They grab the history books. It's like, you see, there's all these books on the shelf. Pulls one of them off. And it's literally, it's like, here's one. Open the book, the dust flies. He says, let's read about this. And the guy starts reading him. And in those records, he discovered an account of how Mordecai had exposed the plot of Big Fauna and Teresh, two of the eunuchs who guarded the door to the king's private quarters. They had plotted to assassinate King Xerxes. We read about that. What reward or recognition did we ever give Mordecai for this? The king asked. He says, I remember that. He said, what did we ever do for this guy? And his attendants replied, nothing has been done for him. Now, that in itself, on the very night before Mordecai is supposed to be impaled on this pole, the king can't sleep, grabs all these history books, opens to one spot, has it read for him, and it talks about Mordecai. And and the attendants said, nothing's been ever done for him. And then they hear stirring in the outer court. They can hear people up. It's probably been a while now. It's getting near morning. They can hear stirring. And the king then says, who's that in the outer court? As it happened, I love how it says that. As it happened. It didn't just happen, okay? But as it happened, Haman, yes, thank you, (laughs) had just arrived in the outer court of the palace. Do you see that none of this is just happening to happen? At that moment, Haman just arrived, I said it fast so you don't have to say it, just arrived in the outer court of the palace, and here's why. To ask the king to impale Mordecai on the pole he prepared. So you see the picture the king can't sleep, has old history books read to him, read the one section about Mordecai saving his life. What's been done for him? Nothing's been done for him. What's that noise in the outer court? Oh, that's Haman coming, and we know that he's coming to ask the king to impale Mordecai on the pole he prepared. So the attendants replied to the king, Haman is out in the court. The king orders, bring him in. Now, the king doesn't know anything about this plot yet because Haman came in to tell him, hasn't told him yet. So Haman comes in. I love this part of the story. Haman comes in and the king says, the king is now, remember, king is in the mode of Mordecai saved my life and we never did anything for him. Haman's in the mode of, I cannot wait to impale Mordecai on that pole. So the king says, what should I do to honor a man who truly pleases me? It's chapter six. Who? What would I do to honor a man who truly pleases me? Haman thought to himself, whom would the king wish to honor more than me? So you see, they're thinking different things. They're using the same words. They're talking in the same room. No communication going on, really. So he replied, here's his response to the king. If the king wishes to honor someone, he should bring out one of the king's own royal robes, as well as a horse that the king himself has ridden, one with a royal emblem on its head. Let the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials, and let him see that the ki- the man whom the king wishes to honor is dressed in the king's robe and led through the city square on the king's horse. And then have the officials shout as they go: "This is what the king does for someone he wishes to honor." And Haman's thinking, "This is going to be good." <coughs> Excellent, the king said to Haman. Quick, take the robes and my horse and do just as you have said to Mordecai, the Jew. (laughs) I would have loved to see Haman's face at that moment. He said, do just as you have said for Mordecai, the Jew who sits at the gate of the palace, leave nothing that you have suggested out. This is just too good. Here's the truth in this. God will work in mysterious, sometimes silent and spiritual ways to bring about his purposes. There is nothing that can be done to thwart God's purposes. They're gonna come to pass. You can get bowled over by them or you can be a part of them. That's the choice. And God will work in your life in mysterious and sometimes silent and spiritual ways. And you might not even know in the middle of it that it's him. But you'll look back and you'll see, as it happened, this is where God placed me. As it happened, and you'll even look at the bad things. And you'll see how God used all of those things to accomplish his purposes in your life. So the last part of their story we'll look at today is that Haman's plot was exposed and he's executed. So this is from Esther chapter 7. It says, so the king and Haman went out to Queen Esther's banquet. They went to Queen Esther's banquet. Remember, the, the plan was to tell the king and have Mordecai put on a pole and then go on your merry way to the banquet with the king and Esther. But um, that's not what's going to happen here. So the, the king and Haman go to Queen Esther's banquet, and it's just them, you know, and the king has his attendants and bodyguards and stuff, but it's them in this banquet sitting at the table. On this, on this second occasion, second time this has happened, While they were drinking wine, the king again said to Esther, tell me what you want. Because at the first banquet, he said, tell me what you want. He said, anything you want, even if it's half my kingdom. And she didn't respond yet. And so the second time, the king again said to Esther, tell me what you want, Queen Esther. What is your request? I will give it to you, even if it's half the kingdom. He loved her so much. Remember, she had a nice outline. She had a good face. But she was also a really good person. It says, um, I'll give it to you even if it's half the kingdom. And Queen Esther replied, if I have found favor with the king, and if it pleases the king to grant my request, I ask that my life and the lives of my people will be spared. For my people and I have been sold to those. Remember, the people who are going to kill them get all their stuff. So they're like slaves now, sold to those people who are going to get all this stuff. There was a whole bunch of money given to be able to even pay everybody to get rid of the Jews. And she says, "Um, I and my people have been sold to those who would kill, slaughter, and annihilate us. If we had merely been sold as slaves, I could remain quiet for that'd be too trivial trivial a matter to warrant disturbing the king. And the king is now furious. He says, who would do such a thing? King Xerxes demanded. Who would be so presumptuous as to touch you? You know, his favorite, the queen, his favorite wife, who would touch you, he says. Remember how many people are sitting at the table? (laughs) Esther replied, (laughs) (laughs) this wicked Haman is our adversary and enemy. Again, I would just love to have been in there. It describes Haman grew pale with fright before the king and queen. Then the king jumped to his feet in a rage. And we know from history that that's one of the things that characterized him was his anger and his fits of rage. But he's going to try to think this through and figure out what's going on. And it says the king jumped to his feet in a rage and went out into the palace garden. So he he gets furious, walks out of the room. So now the only two people left at the table are Haman and Esther. And it says, Haman, however, stayed behind to plead for his life with Queen Esther for he knew that the king intended to kill him. And here's what happens. Just happened to happen at this particular second. In despair, we understand his despair. In despair, he fell on the couch where Queen Esther was reclining just as the king was returning from the palace garden. I love this story. The king exclaimed, Will he even assault the queen right here in the palace before my very eyes? It's like, if somebody, you can't make this up. As soon as the king spoke, his attendants covered Haman's face, signaling his doom. And you get the picture, it's like they put the hood over his head, you're done. Then Abona, one of the king's eunuchs, said, Haman has set up a sharpened pole that stands 75 feet tall. In his own courtyard, he intended to use it to impale Mordecai, the man who saved the king from assassination. We know what Mordecai's face is like, even though it's covered now. We know what he's thinking. The king says, then impale Mordecai on it. I'm sorry, Haman. Haman. (laughs) Haman. I'm seeing Mordecai. Then impale Haman on it, the king ordered. So they impaled Haman on the pole he had set up for Mordecai and a king's anger subsided. What a story. But Xerxes isn't the hero of the story. Esther, for all that she did as a hero of her nation, was not the hero of the story. Mordecai, who did the right thing in tough situations, was not really the hero of this story. Here's the truth for this story and for yours. God is the real hero of your story. God is the real hero of this story. And He's the real hero of your story, whether you believe it or not. Because the truth is, He has been working in your life the whole time. You've made some good decisions and things have still gone bad. I'm going to presume that you're like me and you've made some really stupid decisions and things have gone bad. In all of those things, you're still responsible for your actions. But God is a hero of your story, and he's been working in your story even when you didn't believe it or know it or feel it. Because that's who he is. He has a purpose. He had a purpose for Esther. He had a purpose for her to become queen. He had a purpose for Mordecai to become one of the officials. But he has a purpose for you right now in your situation. We've talked about this a million times. God planned me for his pleasure. (laughs) That's worship. Before the foundations of the world, he planned me. He formed me for his family. That's fellowship. He created me to become like Christ. That's discipleship. He saved me to serve him. That's ministry. And he made me for a mission. That's evangelism. And the truth is, he planned you for his pleasure as well. He formed you for his family. He created you to become like Christ. He shaped you to serve him and he made you for a mission. He has a purpose for your life and right in the middle of whatever you're going going through, good, bad, ugly, indifferent, it doesn't matter. Whatever you're going through right now, here's what this book tells you. It's time to step up. It's time to align your life with God's purposes, because there's a bigger picture than what you see. Had the people in this story just been out for their own little thing, we wouldn't even have this story. Had they just been out for their little bit of comfort in this little short time that they have in life, we wouldn't have been reading about this story, except maybe in a very negative way. So it is time for all of us, each of you, to step up and align your life with God's purposes to respond to his activity, to see what he's doing and join him in that in your life and realize the things that have happened didn't just happen. Respond to that. Open your eyes to the ways that he has been weaving your life together and trust him entirely with your present situation and with your eternal destiny because maybe you were made for this moment. Maybe your story has come to where it's at right now for such a time as this. Because you are one of God's kingdom insiders. I'd like to ask you to pray as we close. fathers. as we read this story, we, we, we get a little bit of an idea and a handle of, of how you are in control behind the scenes even when we don't see it. And even when it looks its darkest that doesn't phase you. That you have your kingdom insiders and we are those kingdom insiders and that you want to use us to dispel the darkness and to bring the light into this world. And so, Father, I ask that even if we don't see at the moment these incredible ways that you're working in our life, we know that someday we will look back and see your hand in our life. Help us to understand that you are the hero of our story. Whether we see it or not, whether we believe it or not, and that you have been working in our life the whole time. And maybe, Father, maybe there's someone listening to this now who they don't realize that they're listening to this right now at this moment because they were made for this moment. For such a time as this. That maybe they don't have that relationship with you. They're not an insider. They're an outsider because they might know church, they might know religion, but they don't know you. They don't have that intimate, personal relationship with the one who is orchestrating all those things. And my prayer, Father, is in simple faith, they would realize that as as your word says, that it's only through Jesus that we come to you. That there's no other name given under heaven among men that we can be saved by. Only Jesus. The way, the truth, and the life. And that in simple faith, they would see that Jesus came and died for sin. Not for his, but for mine. And I'm trusting that what he did on the cross pays for my sin. I'm turning my life, as much as I understand it, over to you, God, at this moment. And I trust that what Jesus did will will allow me to have that relationship with you. And Father, for all those who've already stepped across that line, I pray that today would be the day that we would, all of the lines that we have in our life, all of the next steps that we have, that we would, in faith and confidence that you are there and working, that we would take that step and know that you have placed us in our position for such a time as this. We love you, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please stand for the closing song. I absolutely love the message of that song. And maybe you have realized, maybe for the first time, that in all of the stuff of the time that you're in, he has been pursuing you. In the middle of all of it, I love that line, that he, he, he fights for the furthest heart. It doesn't matter how far you are from him, his love is relentless and he is after you. And he wants you to see that you don't have to be the hero of your story. That he's the hero of your story. And that maybe whatever you're going through, you are made for this moment. And in spite of everything, in spite of all the bad stuff, and maybe even because of it, he can take that and use it in a way that brings light to that darkness around you. So it all comes down to Jesus. Are you willing to say yes? So I don't know what he's asking me to do yet. You have to be willing to say yes first. And then you'll discover what he's doing in your life and you'll be able to follow him and you'll never look back. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your love for us. Thank you that you did pursue us. That you you pursue us and that your love is relentless. And that we can trust that we are important to you, we are are part of your plan and purpose, we are one of your kingdom insiders, and maybe where we're at right now is for just such a time as this. Help us to lean into you and to your purposes and realize that it's because of what you did for us, what you want to do for us, your love for us, that, that we can have not only forgiveness for everything in the past, but meaning and purpose in life today. Thank you for that. We love you. And it's in your son Jesus' name we pray. Amen.